Welcome to the Eric Jackson Podcast. Today, I'm going to be discussing Disney as a service. This is not similar to the, an article that you might have read two years ago in Redef by Matthew Ball, where he talked about Disney as a service, which was really basically an argument for Disney management to launch its own set of streaming services, which they've done, obviously. Uh, my concept of Disney as a service goes much broader, cuts across all of the major business units at Disney, uh, as you will hear uh, in the course of this podcast. Um, and so the place to begin is really, why has the stock been flatlined for three years now? Uh, basically, uh, Disney stock has been stuck at 100, 100 bucks a share, $150 billion market cap. Um, everybody says it's the best in class media company. It is the best in class media company. Uh, it's obviously a traditional media company. Uh, and so why is there really no appreciation for shareholders? Obviously, uh, this all started when uh, Bob Iger came clean to Wall Street uh, three years ago and talked about the, the declining number of subs that they were seeing in their linear um, cable ecosystem. Uh, that frightened investors because... They saw these highly profitable subs going away at, you know, just for the flagship ESPN, uh, you're talking eight bucks a month um, uh, and not getting replaced uh, by equally profitable or hopefully more profitable uh, subs on the other side through some whatever streaming service. Uh, the only examples we've heard of are these various skinny bundles, none of which has really seemed to have kept, you know, caught on in any significant way. And it's certainly a lot less revenue for Disney on a per sub basis compared to the old linear world. So the market weighs that. They say, I see these profits going away. I don't know what it's being replaced by and throws its hands up and the stock goes nowhere. Um, there's a lot that's obviously been going right at Disney. Um, most people don't realize that Parks has been going gangbusters and probably within a couple of years is going to be more profitable than media networks. If they continue on their on their current trajectory, and there's no reason to see why they would not, um, and and obviously Disney's gone into launched ESPN Plus, so they have a streaming service now. They're getting an entertainment SVOD service next year. They've made the BamTech acquisitions. Uh, they've made uh, um, some other tweaks that are you know it's it's all the right things to to do from a management and operational perspective, and yet it has meant bupkis for the stock price. So I want to take a step back and really uh, argue for how I think uh, Bob Iger and Kevin Mayer should be reorienting um, Disney, uh, not just from a narrative perspective and, and, and basically a w words and stories to sell to Wall Street investors, but there's, there's obviously going to be a, an, operational or organizational alignment issue that has to happen if Disney is really going to pull this off. So Disney as a service is obviously a play on, on software as a service, um, enterprise software companies, 
have traditionally um, been among the highest valued companies on, on various metrics uh, compared to across all industries for some time. And, and that's produced a lot of um, derision from certain value investors, especially. So you, you know, names like salesforce.com have been ridiculed by some value investors because they just look so expensive on a price to earnings basis. Uh, and, um, and even on a price to sales basis, um, some of these younger, faster growing uh, enterprise software companies are sometimes 14x price to sales. Uh, Workday is currently about 12 and a half x. Uh, Salesforce.com is uh, just under 9x sales. Um, to you know, to compare that to a company like Disney, Disney is currently, even though it's, it's doing 55 billion a year in sales they are only getting a 2.7x multiple of sales. So far below um, what these other companies are getting. And so uh, Disney, by contrast, and, and, and many other companies would fall into this bucket as well. They get, they've, been tr- they've been valued by Wall Street investors and sell-side analysts who cover them on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis. And typically, these you know, traditional media companies have traded from 9x EV to EBITDA to, you know, 14X on the expensive side. You know, Disney being a premium name used to get that kind of uh, valuation a few years ago. Uh, when these names have been taken to the woodshed, uh, all those multiples have contracted and because people, investors are worried that those profits are going away. So in the, if, in the world where you're a, a, an executive being judged on an EV to EBITDA, EBITDA basis, what do you try to maximize? You try to maximize EBITDA. Um, you reduce share count because that has an impact on your enterprise value. Um, and so, and that's what you get compensated for. That's what drives the big bonuses. So uh, that's why Philippe Domain, uh, uh, borrowed heavily kind of in the early part of this recovery to buy back a bunch of shares instead of reinvesting in the business. When you are running a company that's valued on a price to sales basis, you're trying to maximize sales. Uh, you're trying to show growth. Um, you're trying to show that you're attracting these uh, subscribers. Um, and why are, you know, the reason why, you know, at some point you got to say, maybe the market's not stupid. Maybe the market is not irrational in valuing these companies so highly. What, why do these enterprise software companies uh, or other subscription services get such a high multiple? Well, I think it's, it's pretty reasonable actually uh the reason why they're getting valued so high and people don't care about the customer acquisition costs typically when they're in high growth mode is because getting a subscriber and keeping a long-term subscriber is so profitable over the lifetime of owning it just even on a basic dcf basis um that these are very sticky uh and so you uh don't mind paying up a lot in you know customer acquisition costs if you know that you're going to be keeping these subscribers for years and years and years. Uh, the other thing is that uh, typically these are very high margins that these long-term subscribers are um, uh, driving to these companies. So uh, it's reasonable to value them on a price to sales basis. If you think uh, over the, over the lifetime, these subs are going to translate into very lucrative uh, relationships for this company over time. So, um, 
so back to the the, the problem with uh, you know management being incented towards EV to EBITDA. It uh, it drives a certain behavior. Um, it uh, in a case like Disney, you divide the company into media networks and parks and consumer products, and everyone's responsible for a certain area. They're incented to drive profit in each of those areas and to maximize it. Uh, now, what's interesting is that over the last couple of years, some companies that have been um, typically valued on this, uh, you know, profit basis or earnings basis, price to earnings or EV to basis, have realized that there could be opportunities for them to have a much higher stock price, probably much higher growth rates uh, as well, if they shifted their business away from maximizing upfront profits to um, going after lifetime subscribers and growing that subscriber base and uh, going after the highest margin possible for those for those subscribers. And uh, so it has first started in the world of technology on and uh, the software companies that are perhaps closest to these, you know, these enterprise software companies. Uh, and so I think the two poster children of this shift approach would be uh, Adobe, who did this back in May of 2013, where they shifted from kind of, we'll sell, sell you a box of software up front. You pay us uh, a lot of money right now up front and you have it. You download it on your computer and you've got it. And then uh, maybe in a couple of years, you'll buy another big, expensive uh, CD of, of software from us uh, to replace it. That was their approach um, with both with professionals and with creative folks. Uh, they have different tools and they decided to, to, to go to a, a SaaS model, basically. And so emphasizing subscribers. So what's, what's interesting is that their Adobe's price to sales ratio was about 4x. Uh, prior to the shift in May of 2013, as of today, it is 14.5x. So it's it's a richer um, multiple than even Workday is getting. Uh, and they've had phenomenal growth, uh, and it's been a, a great success story. Another one, even bigger company, is Microsoft. Before Satya Nadella took over as CEO of Microsoft in February of 2014, Microsoft, again, was seen like Adobe had been as this, we'll take all your money up front approach uh, to, to software like the Office apps and so forth. And that was partly because that was the approach um, driven by Steve Ballmer uh, when he was the CEO. Uh, the PS ratio, price to sales ratio for um, Microsoft before Nadella got hired uh, was 3.3x. However, he came from running Microsoft's cloud business. He understand, understood the importance of lifetime relationships with subscribers. Um, and he saw an opportunity to step on the gas on that business, as well as taking some of Microsoft's popular core software apps like, like Office and turning those into a subscription-based model like Office 365. Today, Microsoft stock price has tripled since um, Nadella took over. It's about it's a, just a shade under 100 bucks a share now. Uh, it, it had basically been flat for 10 years under Steve Ballmer. Um, and uh, the price to sales ratio has grown from 3.3x to 6.9x. So it's basic, it's a much uh, richer 
richer valued company today by investors because of this fundamental shift internally at Microsoft to emphasizing uh, services and subscribers. And so perhaps the, the now we we're st- we start to move into some other companies that are not quite, you know, pure, pure are not pure play software companies, but who've also seen the merit of, of making the shift. And the biggest one is Apple, which reported its results earlier this week. And um, basically a two years ago, I believe it was uh, in early 2016 was the first time that Tim Cook on one of, th- of their earnings calls began to emphasize Apple's growing services line item in their results up to that point, And even still today, uh, most uh, analysts and, and investors pay close attention to the margins of the iPhone. And uh, basically they see Apple as a hardware company uh, and everybody laments how Apple's price to earnings ratio is so much lower than a Google's or, you know, or a bunch of, you know, pick, pick any other big cap uh, Facebook uh, tech company. Um, and, uh, and the, the thinking has been, well, yes, it's because Apple is much more, it's a hardware company. Uh, eventually those hardware margins will go down. Um, eventually there will be some other better mousetrap, uh, phone that will come across, whether it's a Xiaomi or a Samsung, uh, there'll be a, a much cheaper version than the iPhone. Uh, and nobody will want iPhones anymore. And the ones that do. Uh, will have to be cut in price. And so the margins will drop precipitously for Apple. That's, I think, you know, it's been part of the thinking and part of the reasoning why the PE ratio on Apple has not just for the last couple of years, but, you know, basically all, you know, ever since 2008 coming out of the financial crisis, it has been much lower than any other big cap tech company. So two years ago, they start talking about services and they start talking about how all they, ha- they have all this information, all these credit card numbers on, uh, um, different Apple users and how people are buying more and more stuff. They're subscribing to, you know, they're, you know, initially they were downloading movies and they were downloading or renting movies. Um, Then uh, they launched Apple music and they started subscribing to the Apple music service. Uh, Then, uh, you know, people were paying, started paying a buck a month for cloud, extra cloud capacity. And uh, they uh, uh, were, uh, that all went into services. Apple Care uh, became part of a must-have because at the rate we we drop all of our iPhones and break the glass uh, multiple times, some cases. Uh, so all these things started pouring into services revenue, and the services kept growing quarter after quarter after quarter. So in the most recent quarter, they were their highest uh, yet. Uh, they were now up to nine billion dollars in revenue just from services. And that represented about 15% of Apple's total revenue reported in that quarter. Um, Apple also pointed out that its subscribers who use services are now up to 270 million uh, of them. And that compares with Amazon Prime, who they've reported also this week that they're now up to 100 million uh, subs to Prime. Uh, Netflix, of course, is now broken through. 125 million global subs to its service, and that's seen as a smashing success. Uh, HBO often gets lumped in there, having something like 100, I think 130 million global subs to its to various services, uh, which they don't all own and operate. Sometimes they they partner with local local partners in certain countries. But Apple's way ahead of all these others with 270 million, and that I think uh, struck people 
as, wow, you know, this is, you know, much more significant. And I think what you started to hear the conversation turn to this week is that it, is it even fair to say only 15% of Apple's um, revenues are services related? Because what's an iPhone? Uh, it's not just hardware. It is a must-have um, part of my service with Apple. Every, you know, in my case, probably two years, but for other people, every three years or four years, um, they are swapping out their old iPhone and they are paying money to get the latest iPhone. Still getting the same iTunes service, same Apple Music service, same cloud protection and so forth, same Apple Care. Um, it's all just on a, on a different cycle. Um, that's every two years or three years or four years. But these, those 270 million people are re-upping. Re they are essentially subscription-based customers to the Apple ecosystem. I think that's the proper way to frame it. And I think that is why Apple really tried to um, uh, emphasize services a couple of years ago because... Um, you know, there's obviously going to be an upper limit on um, the number of iPhones that it can sell globally. At some point, I think there's still there's still a lot more upside than people people think. Um, but it is, um, but it, it's that's the wrong way to think about it. The wrong way to think about the ceiling for Apple's potential is how many iPhones it can sell. It's more to think of how many global subscribers to the Apple ecosystem can they attract and can they sell stuff to and what other self stuff can they sell stuff to. And Jim Cramer was on TV this week and talking about how it, it's, you should really think about the iPhone as the, as the, the razor and the services as the razor blades. And you're going to, you know, have to keep using both over time. Uh, and uh, he thought, and I think he's right, that one of the blockbuster potential news services that Apple's going to un unveil at some point in the next few years is some, you know, whether it's 10 buck a month, 15 buck a month um, service to track your health and all of the health data that, that comes to you through your watch and your, uh, your phone. And, <clears throat> you know, you know that, that's all going to be available to you as well. Um, and it's going to be much more efficient than anything that we have today. And people will gladly um, increase their, their services budget on a, on a monthly basis to add that to their Apple ecosystem subscription. So what's this done from a stock perspective? Well, Apple's price to sales ratio before they made this you know, public shift to a services model in 2016 was 3.7x, uh, still more than Disney, by the way. Um, um, and, uh, oh, oh, sorry, that, that's what it is today, 3.7x. It, so it's nearly double what it was before. Prior to the shift, it was more like a, a Disney-esque uh, in the twos uh, price to sales. It was actually 2.2x, which is even lower than where Disney is today. So it's nearly double from 2.2x to 3.7x. And I would argue that it's probably headed, headed, you know, further North. It's probably going to, you know, Google trades at something like a six X price to sales basis. And I think, um, Apple's probably going to land somewhere in between where it is currently. And that six number would be my guess. Um, maybe, maybe, but as they introduce more services, it, that, that number can continue to go higher. So, um, so again, the reason why it's rational and it's sane that wall street, is paying more for subscription-based services 
is because those services are sticky and higher margin. So this brings us to Disney. So Disney uh, is sort of thought as a one-off seller of stuff today. They've currently got the biggest opening film ever with Avengers uh, Infinity War and it's really done nothing for the stock. The stock hasn't moved, even though, you know, we're talking about uh, it passing a billion dollars gross, um, I think, this weekend. Why is that? Why doesn't the, the latest Star Wars movie not work? I think it's the same reason that we talked about before with Apple, that, that Wall Street is, is sort of like, well, what have you done for me lately type? They say, okay, well, that's great, but so what? Uh, you're splitting a lot of that billion in revenues with the theater owners. You had to spend big on marketing uh, to to get that film out there, um, and you know who who's to say that uh, six months from now, one year from now, three years from now, the next version of the Avengers movie is going to be as good. So it's not something we can pencil in. Uh, it might just you know easy come, easy go, hits based Hollywood business. Um, let's put no stock in it. Uh, so I think. Disney needs to reorient itself as a Disney as a service company. And that doesn't just mean pump out a streaming SWAT service next year or pump out an ESPN plus it, it that those are just incremental point solutions that don't solve the fundamental problem that wall street has been having of where is this company going three years from now, five years from now, why should I get excited about it? So here's my view on why investors should get excited about it. And what I would say if I was in Iger's or Kevin Mayer's spot, I would say, obviously, Disney's a premium brand. We Millions of families around the world, and not just in North America, but now more and more in China, where the middle class has exploded. Uh, they want to continually, not just one time, continually have Disney experiences. Sometimes that's with our movies. Sometimes that's with our TV shows. Sometimes that'll be some sort of interactive content. Sometimes that's a physical experience at the Disney parks, on the Disney cruises, um, through some other, you know, uh, Broadway shows, for example. And, you know, probably there are lots more um, offline Disney experiences that uh, the company could continue to create. But these families want to have a relationship. They want to dress their daughters in Elsa and Anna um, t-shirts and dresses and PJs. They want to see the latest adventures movie, the latest black Panther movie. They want to uh, go see the latest toy story movie with, uh, and that might appeal to the younger kids in the family. They want to sometimes kick back and watch the handmaid's tale because that's great, more adult content. Uh, Some of the teens and tweens, want to see the latest version of high school musical or whatever, the, you know, the next Jake Paul version of high school musical will be, for example. Um, and so all of these things are appealing. And today wall street thinks that, well, you know, here's the revenue and they got one, they got this many, this much money for their hotel rooms. They got this much capacity in the parks this year. Uh, they had this much gross on their box office this year, but who knows if uh, this will happen uh, again. And uh, whereas Disney is not presenting it as we have this relationship with this many hundreds of millions of subscribers to our Disney service. Uh, and uh, we are, we see this opportunity to take it from 
you know, a hundred million to 300, 400, 500 million, uh, globally over time. Uh, that is what's missing. And that's the opportunity. I think, um, I think if they did come out with some sort of subscription service that allowed for access, you know, probably major discounts to parks, uh, the eight parks around the world, maybe access to uh, a certain number of passes to see the movies. And sometimes that might be in the theaters at the beginning of this. Sometimes though uh, there might, that might be through the streaming services that are going to be launched. And there might be exclusive films and TV shows that are only on those streaming services. For example, like what happens when five years from now, Avengers six comes out and it is only available on the Disney SVOD service. Do you think that there are going to be lots of customers that would just subscribe to some Disney subscription service just for that uh, experience? If that was the only place that they could get it. Um, I mean, we saw the signups that Hulu experienced just from having the hit with Handmaid's Tale. So imagine if there was like some version of Black Panther or Avengers with that Disney service. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the savings from being part of this membership subscription service to Disney uh, that, that could be translated to access to the parks, I think is also huge. I, I haven't been in the parks in probably four years is when I last took my family. So I went back on the Disney parks website, typed in, what would it cost me if I was a family of four, I wanted to go to say Walt Disney World for three days, um, just the park ticket access. And I was surprised to see it was almost 2,500 bucks um, in ticket fees. Now, of course, then I got to pay for hotels. If I stay on site, that revenue is going to Disney. Uh, and of course, the big thing are foods and all the gear that I'm going to buy for my family when I'm down there. Um, so it, it is a huge cost. And if the subscription service delivered real value against that cost, um, that would be very attractive. Um, what's also exciting about thinking about the, how the parks relates to the streaming service or, or, and relates to passes to Broadway shows and discounts on merchandise is that that's in now, now all those things are in Disney's wheelhouse. All of those things are not just in their wheelhouse, but are things that they uniquely, they've, they've, the capital expenditure is already spent. The stuff is there. The parks are built. It's ready to go. Netflix will never be able to replicate that even, you know, in decades from now, um, you know, even if they build a one-off park, it's just not going to be the same. You don't have the parks in China to appeal to the hundreds of millions of Chinese who want to experience them, uh, let alone the parks over here and the parks in Europe. So this is a game that Disney can win if it delivers huge value to the, the subscription service across all of its business units. And uh, it reorients management of the various business units to want to see this succeed. They don't see it as, oh, you're taking away my EBITDA out of parks or out of consumer products or out of media networks. They see that it's, it's, they're, they're going to be better off as a, as a result. Uh, so, and so what they charge for it is going to be huge. I mean, I did a quick back of the envelope calculation for what I'm spending on Disney related stuff. Um, factoring in like going to Disney, uh, Disney parks, like, like once every three years and what I spend, you know, for subscriptions to various channels, uh, movie tickets, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
and it, it came out to, for me, something like 2000 bucks a year I'm spending on Disney related stuff. And that's about 116 bucks a month. Uh, so if there was a Disney service subscription service that for 20 bucks a month, um, offered me a big savings against that, and it's going to be stuff that I'm going to do anyway, I would gladly pay for that. Gladly pay, pay for that. So how big could you push out a 20 buck a month subscription service? Um, what's the opportunity? I mean, we know, I, I mentioned the numbers before about Apple subscribers, Disney subscribers, uh, or uh, uh, Netflix prime subscribers. Where, where could Disney be? Not just today. Um, if they've been up and running a year or two, but basically in five years from now, assuming it's a high quality, um, unique experience, um, and, and, and really delights people. Uh, I think the opportunity is there that they could go after something like, um, um, uh, I would say 300 million, uh, global, uh, families, basically households that would want to pay access to, uh, that type of service, 20 buck a month service, that's $72 billion a year in subscription revenue for Disney. Today, as I said before, Disney has $55 billion a year in revenues. That number is going to go down the 55 billion because that's all the, the legacy stuff would go down. Uh, the legacy, you know, ad revenue and cable revenue. I mean, we know, we all know that's going away. And if you built up the subscription revenue on the other side, you know, you would have to take a little, you know, through discounting, you'd have to take some of the parks revenue away, but you'd have to sell it internally as a, this is going to, we're going to all be better off in the long run, because if we get to $72 billion in subscription revenue, even if the $55 billion goes down a little bit and only gets valued on this sort of like 2.7 X price to sales ratio for that, the subscription revenue is probably going to, going to get a much richer uh, valuation. Uh, and so, you know, when I look at that, you know, so it's probably going to be, you know, at least four X, which is kind of close to where Apple is now and hopefully gets up to something like six X that subscription revenue. So when you, um, do the math on that, I mean, you're talking about a market capitalization for Disney of something like half a billion dollars or 550, uh, billion precise to be precise versus the 150 billion today. So that's, you're basically talking about a near 4X increase in Disney stock over a, say a five-year period, which is probably what it would take to really um, pull this off and start selling this. Um, that's meaningful, obviously, for shareholders. That's motivating for Disney management. And ultimately, it's a great um, service for Disney customers. Disney customers who are members of such service are probably going to visit the parks much more frequently than they do currently. If they are just deciding to, okay, maybe the, to this year's the year I'm going to pop uh, 2,500 bucks for parks tickets to, to fly down to Florida and uh, experience that for three days. So it, you could get this, you know, much greater use of the park. And if you did, obviously that would be great from a hotel revenue and, uh, concession perspective as well. So I think what's also attractive about this, uh, this type of a model is that, or narrative, some might say, is that it really gets the narrative off this. How many subscribers did ESPN lose this month? Oh, what's going to happen next month? I mean, it really doesn't matter. That's a legacy business. 
It's going to continue to be a highly profitable business. It's probably going to shrink a lot slower than people think. And you, you basically say, hey, I don't care if we lost 500,000 households this month or this year or this quarter for ESPN. Keep your eyes on the prize here, guys. We are going after 300 million global families, uh, a lot of which will probably be in China, to be honest. And we think we can attract them. We think we can get them to pay up for a big subscription service. And if we do, if we're right and we pull this off, we're talking about a $500 billion stock price. That's, ex that's motivating for, for shareholders. They, shareholders get that. So um, Disney as a service, I think they should definitely um, consider it. And I hope uh, that, that they will. Mm -hmm.